0: Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
1: This is The Red Line, where we interview three geopolitical experts on one big issue shaping news both here and overseas. And I'm your host, Michael Hilliard. Just two weeks ago, Azerbaijan occupied Nagorno Karabakh, a territorial dispute that had been plaguing the country since the early 1990s, and one that until recently had been viewed by Baku as unsolvable as it was always assumed that Russia would come to the rescue of Armenia if it looked like Karabakh might actually fall. But the war in Ukraine changed all of that, but now Russia doesn't have the spare troops available to do that. For 30 years, the board was set one way, and then boom, after Ukraine, the board is set another way. Every strategic calculation that decided the foreign policy of these nations for 30 years has completely changed in the last one and a half. But it wouldn't be just Azerbaijan re-examining the board as there are several Russian breakaways right across the former Soviet Union. And whilst Abkhazia and South Ossetia and Georgia are worth taking a look at, Transnistria, or Prednostrovi, has had its entire existence turned upside down by the war in Ukraine. For those who are not aware, Transnistria is a breakaway republic within the UN-recognized borders of Moldova, a fairly tiny, long, thin nation that's only about 15 miles wide and 100 miles tall, with the border mostly being demarcated along the Dniester River. Now on the west bank of the Dniester River is Moldova proper, the almost little brother to Romania, that whilst very Russia-feeling, also speaks a language that isn't that far off Italian, whereas on the east bank of the river, in Transnistria, they all speak Russian, pying for the glory days of the USSR, and still maintain their Soviet flag with the red banner and the hammer and sickle flying above it. And inside that territory is not only the Transnistrian army, but also a small Russian garrison of troops. Watching over the breakaway state, in an effort to not only deter Moldova in aggression, but also apply pressure to the government in Kizhnev. And that's been the situation for almost 30 years now, with the two sides sitting with an uneasy peace across the Danista River. But that situation is starting to change, with Moldova's new leader, Maya Sandu, ratcheting the country westward, even if it is against the wishes of some of the population. In recent times, we've even seen members of the government suggesting that Kizhnev, the capital of Moldova, should use this unique moment in time to solve its exclave problem once and for all, in much the same way that Azerbaijan solved theirs, as ever since the invasion of Ukraine, the supply line to Transnistria has become tenuous at best, and it's very unlikely that Russia would be currently able to support the garrison there. But at the same time, Kizhnev is planning all of this whilst Europe is starting to tire of war on the continent, and most of the spare guns and ammo they had lying around have been already given to Kiev for that fight. And on top of that, others are also warning Kizhnev that an occupation of Transnistria would be even harder this time around as these citizens within Transnistria have had their own language, passports, laws, parliament, customs, and whatnot now for 30 years, and may somewhat resist being re annexed by a government who is even more culturally removed than the one they broke away from in 1990. After all, the cultural differences were one of the main factors in the Danista war that split the two in the first place. Now, Kizhnev is even more different to Traspol, the capital of Transnistria. So much like Kizhnev, Transnistria finds itself at a key junction in history, as it can see where the winds of change are going. So will it seek to use this moment to bring Kizhnev under its rule at the one point in time when NATO weapon supplies are low throughout the continent, and far before Moldova ever gets the chance to join the EU or NATO itself, as once they do, any such invasion would become infinitely harder. Or could Kizhnev seek to move on Transnistria and induce a surrender of the garrison there, based on the fact that the garrison knows that resupply from Russia would be near on impossible? Will this forgotten conflict across the Denisa River finally come to an end, or does neither side really have the capacity to change the current reality? Well, those are some of the questions we're going to be answering today, and to unpack why these tensions on both sides of the river are currently rising, as well as why Moldova is once again appearing on the radars of European defence planners, we turn to our first guest.
0: Part 1. Resetting the Board So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Moldova's always felt like the really forgotten corner of Europe that had a foot sort of planted in both camps, to use the old cliche. So what do I mean by that? That you've actually got a large part of the population, which very clearly aligned with the old Communist Party that hankered after the old Soviet days. Although we have a very pro-European government in power in Moldova, and this is a key thing to be thinking about, there's still a very sizable part of the Moldovan population, which is inherently and intrinsically pro-Russian. It's obviously difficult to get a a clear sense of it, but from latest figures that I've seen, it would really amount to a solid third of the Moldovan population can be considered pro-Russian. So that creates a very, very complex dynamic in the country. And Moldova is very much, if you like, the front line of the political battle between Russia and the West.
1: James Kerr Lindsay is a visiting professor at the University of Kent, and a research associate at the London School of Economics, with his research specializing in conflict, peace, and security in Southeast Europe, as well as European Union Enlargement. He has an extensive list of publications, including over a dozen authored or edited books, and 70 or more articles and book chapters on this very subject, although most people might be more familiar with James' work from his YouTube channel, Professor James Kerr lindsay which I honestly cannot speak more highly of, as a great source of crash courses for geopolitics, and so we're thrilled to have our good friend James back on the program.
2: The thing to remember about Moldova is it's constitutionally neutral. It's required to not join any military alliances. But it would be interesting to get a deeper dive on this because we have seen Sweden and Finland change that view and quite a lot of societal support for it. But I think that Moldova also say that we can see the benefits of joining the European Union. There's clear economic benefits for it, but there's a sizable part of the population that sort of feel very strongly that NATO membership isn't something that they want.
1: And I think that really sets up the underlying dynamics in the country at the moment. We've already done an episode on the internal political dynamics in Moldova, so if you want a much deeper look at that, you can check out that video if you want to look more at the political angle of the story. But sticking to the topic of today, for a bit of background, you have a population in Moldova, which all simultaneously view the EU as a great way to make money and also something that would put their ideals upon the country by force depending on who you speak with. And certainly when you're in Kishinev, the capital, you do get the sense that most people will see EU membership as the goal for the country in the future. However, things do change when you head outside the capital city, or depending on who you're speaking with Them. However, being pro-EU doesn't make you pro-West, as many Moldovans might view the EU as simply just a better way to make more money. And being EU certainly doesn't make you pro-NATO, as there are significant Russia-aligned populations within the country. Recent polling done also reveals the underlying conflict here, with only 24% of the population actually supporting Moldova seeking NATO membership, and 62% against it. Even when the Russians were barreling through Ukraine, that number for support only ever topped out at 24.5%, so NATO membership is a contentious issue to say the least. And with that in mind, we now move to the country's new leader since 2020, Maya Sandu, who entered leadership after a run of pro-Russian governments in Moldova and after 2021, now resides over a parliament where the second biggest party, owning about a third of the seats, is run by the bloc of communists and socialists, all of which vehemently oppose what Sandu has been doing, as Sandu has been staunchly pushing the country in a pro-West direction, making multiple deals with the EU, running military exercises with NATO, and even replacing the previous Minister of Defence, Viktor Gayachik, a former Soviet Air Force officer, with Anatoly Nostali a Moldovan army officer who received his education and training through the U.S. Army, and his offers a training through the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College back in 2005. And with that, we can see the dynamics starting to form in the country between the pro-West and the pro-Russian blocks of the country. So with that background set up, let's get back to our questions. James, where do you see Sandu on the spectrum of, let's say, pro-West to pro-Russia? Is she deeply one way or the other, or somewhere in the middle?
2: I think Sandu is absolutely pro-European. I think she gets it and there is a significant element of the population which is pro-European we also have to remember that a large proportion of the moldovan population actually hold eu passports you know for all the historical reasons of course that moldova was traditionally claimed by romania and that a large part of the population are ethnic romanians and in actual fact it was quite interesting that recently moldova changed its constitution to recast the language from moldovan to romanian and so there is a large a sense amongst many Moldovans that they see themselves anyway as Europeans, that they, they've got their EU citizenship. But of course, you, as I say, it comes back to the fact that you, you've you got this significant bloc that certainly don't see themselves. And a lot of those are, are made up from Moldovans who are Russian in origin, who aren't eligible for Romanian citizenship. So that, that becomes an interesting factor in all of this. But essentially, I think we can say unequivocally that Sandhu is pro-European and is leading a, a very strong pro-European push in the country.
1: Now, President Sandhu made news this week by, for the first time since the end of the dniester War, referring to Russia as a security threat to Moldova, stating that Moscow plans to, in the near future, liquidate the country's statehood. These comments coming off the back of Sandhu claiming that Russia launched an attempted coup against her back in February by shipping in a whole bunch of soccer hooligans from Montenegro, Serbia, and Belarus for a game between FC Sheriff, the Transnistrian football team, and FC Partizan from Belgrade, in hopes of starting a riot within the capital and later a revolution within the country. Now, Sandu has claimed that this was mastermind by former head of Wagner and Darwin Award recipient Yevgeny Prigozhin. And to be fair, there has been evidence that Russia has been handing out Visa debit cards linked to Dubai bank accounts right across the country. But at the same time, John Kirby, the coordinator for strategic communications at the National Security Council, has expressed doubts as to Russia's involvement or Russia's current ability to orchestrate such a plan within Moldova. But how do you see all of this playing out across the country at the moment?
2: Well, we're caught in a very strange and murky time, and we've been seeing Russia's really stepping up its hybrid warfare Right from the start of the war, there was a concern that this faction, seeing the direction Moldova was taking, would try and push against the government. And there has been all sorts of evidence that's been coming out right from the start of the war in Ukraine, that Russia has been stepping up its hybrid war activities in Moldova, spreading disinformation. There was a very strong political party, which is in the process of being banned at the moment which is considered to be very pro-Russian that has been sort of significant in what we've been seeing. But of course, these situations one has to take with a certain degree of caution. It isn't always as clear exactly what's going on. And it, it, it's one of these sort of, you know, there's there's a lot of he said, she said goes on in these situations. But yes, the government did claim that there was an attempted coup against it. How realistic this was, how serious it was, I think that there is a lot of debate about it. I don't think there's any debate about the seriousness of Russia's hopes to be able to to shift opinion in the country and overthrow, but I don't know how seriously we can take the idea that there was, in fact, a serious coup attempt.
1: Now, one of the biggest levers that Russia has held over every government in Moldova for a long time now is to do with natural gas. Now, Russia, mostly through Gazprom, donates millions of dollars of gas to Transnistria for free. To which Transnistria converts that gas into electricity to power its massive power stations, then selling the electricity and excess gas off to Moldova at below-market price. So Moldova gets cheap gas, and Transnistria gets to keep some of the profit. So every time Moldova has pulled further towards the west, Russia has threatened to cut off this gas to Moldova. This has been the play for years now. As cutting Moldova off would force Moldova to buy gas from the EU at a much higher rate, pushing up the country's cost of living crisis. Now, Sandu admittedly has tried to change the status quo by stating that Moldova will no longer be buying gas from Transnistria, and after receiving a $318 million donation from the EU, she went through with what she said and diverted the gas pipes back toward Transnistria. However, while she has stopped gas imports coming in from Transnistria, she has increased the amount of electricity they're buying from the breakaway state, and made a gas deal with Slovakia in order to meet the shortfall which itself is controversial as Slovakia has been caught buying massive amounts of gas from Gazprom already, buying it at below market cost to then re-export to other European countries, gaining back some of the reliance that many of these states had on Russian gas before the invasion of Ukraine, with Slovakia even being caught back in May opening up ruble-denominated accounts and doing long-term deals for gas imports into the country. So after Sandu took the grant, she has reduced the Gazprom imports they take from Transnistria, to then increase the Gazprom imports they take from Slovakia. And in addition, Transnistria is more than happy to accept the free excess gas that Moldova has turned back toward them, using it as fuel for their power stations, and then selling it back to Moldova for a profit. Now, Moldova is a lower-income country, so asking the citizens to accept a higher price to buy gas from, let's say, Qatar, would be highly problematic for the population, as higher fuel costs make everything in the country more expensive. But do you think these moves by Sandu indicate that it really would be very difficult to get the country off of Russian gas imports.
2: Well, exactly. Many of these countries, their entire economies have been geared towards using Russian gas. Now, people can say, well, Germany is sort of managing to wean itself off. Yeah, but it, Germany's a very, very different country in all sorts of ways. Whereas for a lot of these countries, they're impoverished. So we are seeing that certain countries would like to reduce its reliance on Russian gas because they obviously realize that this in turn gives Moscow significant political clout in one way or another. But again, it's not quite as easy as some might like to think it is.
1: Now, after the comments from Sandu this week that she does view Russia as a security threat to the country, as well as calls from the Sandu administration for Kishinev to work with NATO to carry out massive upgrades to the Moldovan military, there have been calls by some more nationalist members of the current government to consider a military operation to retake Transnistria by force somewhere in the near future. But do you think that's a serious option actually under consideration by the government at the moment or just rhetoric trying to appeal to a certain base?
2: It's always been one of these sort of strange elements of the conflict in Moldova that many have thought, well, look, it's a very small Russian garrison that you have there. I mean, it's estimated to maybe only about 1500 troops that it's especially since the the start of the war in Ukraine that Russia can't resupply them why doesn't Moldova just go and try and retake the area? And I I can see why that there is a wish or some sort of sense in, in certain quarters that this would be the obvious thing to do. But of course, it's much, much more difficult than that might seem for all sorts of reasons. So You have to remember also that Moldova doesn't have a particularly large army in its own right, and it's not an army that's considered particularly strong. Now, of course, you could say, well, the Soviet troops could be very easily defeated. But I I think there is just a sense in many quarters in Moldova as well, that would this unleash all sorts of other diplomatic, potentially military, but also societal problems, that trying to retake Transnistria. It's not just about pushing through the Russian troops. Is there likely to be significant opposition from the people in Transnistria? Remembering, of course, that there is about 30% of the population in Moldova, which tends to be pro-Russian. How would they view it? Would they push back against it? So it becomes quite a complex military and political problem for Moldova to consider Transnistria by force. There's also a very interesting other element in all of this, which is is very little known, is that you've also got uh, a part of southern Moldova, which is autonomous, called Gaguzia, which is made up of a very interesting community that are essentially Turkic, but over the course of the Soviet era became Russified. So although they nominally have Turkic-sounding names, or surnames at least, the lingua franca amongst them is is actually Russian, and Russia has shown a lot of interest in this. And so this is felt as another sort of potentially destabilising influence in the country that could suddenly bubble up and become much more serious if, if Moldova tries to take Transnistria. So I think it becomes a lot more politically and socially complex on top of the military side of it to try and take Transnistria. Although I can actually well imagine that there will be many in Moldova who say we should be trying anyway.
1: And all of this seemed like a very real possibility back in May 2022, when Russia was still barreling through the south of Ukraine. At that point in time, we even saw false flag explosions in the Transnistrian capital, Terazpol and Lukashenko, the president of Belarus, presenting maps to the world indicating a Russian push to Transnistria once the major port of Odessa on the south coast of Ukraine had fallen. At that point in time, the EU was promising millions of dollars of military aid to Moldova and support in the case of an invasion. Although, since Odessa never fell and the immediate threat subsided, that military aid has since never come up again, much to Moldova's dismay. So why do you think the EU changed its mind on giving that aid? And how serious do you think the threat was to Moldova at that period of time?
2: It is important to bear in mind, situations developed very quickly at the start of 2022. I think we sort of forget that there was this sort of moment that it did look possible that Russia, even if it couldn't take in Kyiv and the northern and western parts of Ukraine, could nevertheless have pushed all along the south, get to Odessa, and then push up into Transnistria. And from there, potentially take Moldova. And so there was a very, very serious discussion about this at the time, that everything needed to be done to protect Moldova. But of course, the Russian advance then stalled. And that took a lot of the pressure off. And of, of course, what we've seen as a result of that is that all that attention, that political, that media, that policy attention that was being given to Moldova at the time has disappeared since then, that it has fallen off the agenda. But of course, this is still very much an important issue and an and issue that European policymakers, Western policymakers more generally, need to be thinking about. I'm absolutely sure that there will be a certain degree of nervousness that, yes, what happens if, if Moldova suddenly flips and we've been giving it all this equipment? You know, that, that may well have been on the minds also of policymakers as they were sort of considering all their options. But it probably has more to do with the fact that obviously Moldova is not a NATO member. Resources are limited. And at the moment, the focus really is very much on Ukraine and the front lines there.
1: Do you think NATO would have defended Moldova if Russia had been successful in taking Odessa and then reaching Transnistria?
2: It's a difficult one because there is obviously that important link with Romania and Romania as an EU member, as a NATO member, would insist that this becomes a very high priority and would keep it on the agenda in a way that you can argue that that wasn't the same sort of case with the the republics in the Caucasus. But the fact is that it would be a war of aggression that would then bat- buttress up against another NATO member. And I think the conversation will probably be more serious whether we would see NATO intervene. Again, you know, Moldova isn't a member and has made it very clear it doesn't want to be a member. It sees itself as neutral. So I think there would be a sort of a lot of international opposition. I mean, an in- interesting that could be, you know, a, an element into all of this because of voices to say, well, and incorrectly, but they say, it nevertheless, that Ukraine somehow brought what's happened on itself because it was pursuing NATO membership and that this was an outrage. You can't make the same argument for Moldova. Moldova isn't trying to get into NATO. It's made it very clear, as you said, you know, public opinion doesn't support it, that this is a country that is firmly wedded to its neutrality. So it would be a rather different discussion, potentially.
1: So Moldova may not want to get involved in the war on Ukraine, But what happens if Ukraine loses the war and cedes territory to Russia? Would there be something that Moldova could continue to ignore? Or would there be simply starting a countdown to Russia carrying out its next invasion, this time within Moldova?
2: If Ukraine loses, then you've got a lot of frontline European countries which say that they could be next. I think there is a sense that Moscow would feel empowered by winning in Ukraine, but whether it would take a pop at Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, let alone Poland, I think is unlikely. And NATO leaders, including President Biden, have been very, very clear from the outside, not one inch of of NATO territory. And I, I don't think, you know, Moscow would push that far. But obviously, looking at the map, then countries like Moldova do become very, very obvious targets for Moscow as a next step to simply say, well, you know what? This used to be part of the Soviet Union. There's a large part of the population that wants to be allied with us and wants to be part of us. You know, this terrible Moldovan government is is cracking down on them. We're going to step in and protect them. So I think there's every reason to be very worried that if Ukraine loses, then we could see other countries like Moldova fall to it.
0: Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money.
1: So Sandu is leading a country with the fault lines running beneath her, widening each and every day. Now Sandu and her government are trying to lean toward NATO and the EU, seeing that as the future of the country, and desperately hoping to replenish the Moldovan army as it hasn't seen major upgrades since the mid-1980s, with several members of her administration making open calls to consider solving the Transnistria question once and for all, as there may never be another time when Russia is so bogged down and not able to send any reinforcements into the pocket whether over land or through smuggling avenues but with what Moldova has on hand at the moment would they actually be able to knock out Transnistria if they wanted to and on the flip side could Transnistria seize the rest of Moldova if they wanted to hoping to remove the current leadership before those nato weapons start arriving into the country well to answer that we turn to our second guest
2: part 2 over the river
3: You don't flip a switch and suddenly have this finely honed, well-equipped force that can withstand conflict out past 60 days and battle a pure foe. And by that, I mean military opponent that could go toe-to-toe in terms of capabilities and capacity and training. Money can't buy you expediency. It can just enable you to build out your force over a graduated timeline.
1: Dan Darling is Forecast International's Director of Military and Defense Markets, with Forecast International being one of the premier defense and security analytics groups, specializing in collating the exact number and capabilities of global militaries. Dan oversees a team of analysts tasked with covering everything from military budgeting to weapon systems to defense electronics and military aerospace, with Dan's particular specialty being in the international military markets for Europe, Eurasia, the Middle East, and the Asia-Pacific region, and
3: we're thrilled to have him back on the program today from the russian angle it, it's more keeping a destabilized country transnistria gives it leverage in moldova and that leverage is keep moldova essentially neutral from the russian eyes and not fully in the nato eu orbit which is what moscow fears most so the presence of roughly 1500 so-called peacekeepers is both a tripwire against any encroachment by Moldovan forces into Transnistria, but also it's a a tool in which the Russian side can ramp up or dial down activity that can keep the Moldovan government unstable and not cohesive and looking to orient itself fully to NATO Europe. It also provides Russia at least eyes and ears further to the, the west of its own borders, just like it does with Russian forces in Belarus and Russian forces in the Kaliningrad Oblast, which is a Russian exclave situated near Poland. So there's a lot of reasons for the Russians to utilize and value Transnistria. On the other end of the spectrum, from the NATO perspective, Moldova has value in that deconstructing a frozen conflict leaves one less headache in the European backyard. And so long as Russia can constantly leverage the situation in Moldova, the frozen conflict, then NATO and the EU always have a concern because that Moldova is borders Romania, which is a NATO-EU member. It's a constant push-pull. We've seen this in Georgia. Georgia would like to align itself to NATO and the EU, but so long as these frozen conflicts in Abkhazia and South Ossetia continue, NATO and the EU then are, from a vantage point, they feel that they don't want to bring on members with internal divisions. So Russia technically almost wins by keeping the situation unstable and unsettled. So we'll be talking
1: a lot about these two militaries across this episode, but to lay out a bit of a baseline for everyone, let's go through a general makeup of the two military sides here. And to start with, let's take a look at the Moldovan military. The Moldovan military consists of around 4,000 troops, most of which being conscripts, with quite a number of supply problems very much present within the military, operating very little in the way of railway support units or logistics units, which makes sense when you take a look at what they're working with. Just for starters, their military budget is a mere $25 million which for context is about what the US military spends on its armed forces every 16 minutes. And what's worse than that is the fact that over 62% of the military budget for Moldova goes towards salaries, meaning there's very little left in the budget for the upkeep of equipment or let alone the purchase of new stuff. Looking at the full structure, the Moldovan forces are spread across a few motorized infantry brigades using mostly older 70s and 80s USSR armored fighting vehicles. And even when we zoom out and look at the entire Moldovan military, only around 10% of all of Moldova's equipment has been produced during the period since the breakup of the Soviet Union. So it's all pretty old stuff. But what about the other side? What is the other side operating with? Now on the other side we have the Transnistrian military and the Russian garrison within the country. And first we'll take a look at the Transnistrian military. Now much like Moldova, it's not a first-class military power, being made up of around 5,000 soldiers with another 80,000 in reserve. But i take that 80,000 with a pinch of salt, as there's probably nowhere near enough equipment to actually kit them out. For the Transnistrians, their military is mostly laid out across a series of motorised infantry brigades, and like their counterparts across the river, they're mostly made up of old BTRs and BRDM armoured personnel carriers and armoured vehicles, that for the most part were manufactured in the 70s and 80s. And their armoured battalion on paper boasts around 18 C 64s, which compared to Moldova's zero tanks means they'd probably win that one. Although most of the Transnistrian tanks, went into production sometime in the early 60s to mid 70s. Now, some of these tanks have gone through some modernization kits and have had some bolt-on extras put onto them. So some of them are somewhat capable. But out of those 18 tanks they have on paper, it seems like a pretty safe bet. Based on military reports and what they can actually feel for their military parades, it seems that only about half or half and a bit of them are actually in serviceable condition with the rest of them likely being cannibalized for parts to supply the rest of the tank force. So, probably not a fantastic military on paper. Now, if we look at the Russian garrison there, designated as the very catchy operational group of Russian forces, consists of around 1,500 Russian personnel under the command of the Western Military District. Now, this force again is mostly motor rifle battalions who have slightly better equipment than what the Transistrians or the Moldovans do, but it's also not a huge leap up in equipment either. Troop quality also may not have a huge leap up either, As many of these reports indicate that the majority of troops that are based within these 1500 Russian soldiers may not even be Russian, as it's become harder and harder, even before the war in Ukraine kicked off, to rotate their soldiers and personnel through Transnistria, with both Moldova and Ukraine becoming less cooperative over time, to which these days they tend to rely mostly on locals to fill those ranks, meaning local personnel wearing Russian flags, getting these locals on side by offering better pay than what the local force does and offering free housing with Moscow then staffing most of the officer corps of this group with ethnic Russians, which the Russians will rotate the officer corps through, replacing around 100 Russian officers every six months. However, its overall commander, Colonel Dmitry Zelenkov, has been an overall commander of the group since 2014, which is a remarkable consistency for a Russian group. The one advantage this group does have, however, is the huge ammo dump sitting at Kabanza, with around 22,000 tons of ammunition and supplies sitting in the facility, now, This facility was originally stockpiled as a resupply point for Russian forces, plowing into the Balkans in the event of a full war with Europe, so there is a lot of equipment sitting in the bunkers here. But thinking through that timeline, it should give you a rough idea on how old most of this equipment is likely to be. So with all that in mind, how capable do you actually think these forces are? If we were to first look at Transnistria, do you think they're actually capable of making a big push out of their territory in an operation that could capture Kizhnev? Or frankly, with what they have on hand, there's no one near enough supply to make a push that big?
3: The first issue is what's the quality of the 1500 troops in TransNistria? Are they motivated? Are they well trained? are they well equipped? Other than having a, a massive ammunition and ordnance stockpile in that territory, it's always been kind of a particularly now a secondary theater for Russia. And transferring troops and equipment right now across through the Black Sea and possibly through via air into that area becomes all the more difficult for Russian forces. First, it, it would be apparent to countries friendly to Moldova that massive amounts of equipment or troops are just through surveillance and intelligence gathering and uh, satellite surveillance, they would be able to tell quite quickly the scale of what Russia is bringing over, which would alert Moldova, and possibly any countries that would look to provide support to Moldova. To be quite frank, there isn't a lot of equipment in Transnistria, and what's there is older legacy equipment, probably not serviced very well. Those troops, from my vantage point, simply serve as a tripwire if Moldova was to make any kind of excursion or attempt, offensive attempt into that territory that would be a casus belli for russia to become involved but at the current moment that there just isn't any capability over there and therefore you have a stalemate so a lot of hurdles for russia to be able to activate a highly capable and possibly invasive force from transnistria into moldova
1: now when you read most of the war gaming done around this one you can see that for the transnistrians supply becomes a real problem very quickly as, as soon as Transnistria pushes off, even if they get access to everything sitting in Kobanza, they'll still only have a handful of days to capture all of the airfields and major cities within Moldova in order to win the war. So if they're expecting the war to go longer than a week, they'll need to build up a robust supply line, bring in new equipment, new ammunition, and new fuel coming in in a steady stream. But with the war in Ukraine currently going on, I can't see Kiev being all that supportive of Russia bringing in troops, supplies, and men through the facilities in Odessa. Which, when you add on top of that, the Ukrainian air defenses present along their southwest coast, how likely do you think it actually is that Russia would be able to resupply the
3: forces in Transnistria? Your last point is spot on. What is there is what you can fight with. Currently, I would give the chances of Russia being able to air support Transnistria's military capability at less than 5%. The Russians have been hesitant after the early stages of the Ukrainian conflict to activate all of its air force capabilities because they haven't been able to suppress the Ukrainian air defenses. So suddenly making the leap from hesitant to support its troops with air superiority activity over the Ukrainian airspace to activating air transport into that tiny theater of operations and crossing over a large swath of Ukrainian territory, it would just be very difficult and highly unlikely. So what about the Moldovans?
1: Would they currently have the capacity to push in occupied Transnistria with what they have on hand at the moment? What sort of challenges is the Moldovan army going to be up against?
3: I think it's the same problem that the Transnistrians have on the other side of the spectrum, basically, what's the motivation? How well trained are your troops? How motivated are there? What kind of resupply would they have in a conflict The you know, the important last mile of supporting troops on the front line? It's always about logistics in conflict. But from the Moldovan side, they have no real air capability, they don't have combined arms capability, they don't have shock troops, they don't have long range and medium range precision fires, and quite simply, it's not much of an armed force. Most of it is conscripts, which serve anywhere from three to 12 months. And once you cross the river, which is into Transnistria, what kind of bridging and amphibious capabilities do you have, first and foremost? But also, how can you follow through? If you get a breakthrough, how can you consolidate your position? How can you take advantage of any breakthroughs? I would see it as next to impossible with the current state of the Moldovan military.
1: Now, you talked about air power a little bit there. And Moldova, on paper, does have a bit of a leg up here between the two of them with 14 Soviet-era transport helicopters, as opposed to Transnistria's one Soviet transport and one Soviet attack helicopter. However, on paper, the Moldovan military also possesses six MiG-29s, which the Ukrainians did try to buy off them at the beginning of the war, but Kishinev refused to sell it to them, not wanting to upset Russia. Now, whilst six MiG-29s does sound nice, most of these haven't seen action or even taken off in a very, very long time, and are currently sitting in storage in Moldova. Now, in the event of our hypothetical conflict with Transnistria, considering how long it's been since these things have had a service, would Moldova actually be able to reactivate those planes, Or with how old these planes and their airframes in particular would be? In the end, it would hardly be worth it, and they'd probably just be better off going and buying new ones.
3: Basically, what those aircraft are in current state is they are, they would be used for cannibalization and spare parts to keep other aircraft serviceable. So they would be more valuable transferred to the Ukrainians and use in Moldova because they're pretty much non-operational. And even if they could be salvaged, the time frame to get those back into action would be too long. So Moldova would be better off trying to purchase equipment abroad but they don't have the spending capacity for that so therefore moldova is dependent on donations from friendly countries if there are friendly countries that have such capabilities to divest and provide to moldova but who would
1: actually be likely to donate though as most of the likely contenders here like poland romania and czechia have already given away pretty much everything they had spare left to ukraine already
3: Yeah, that's the million-dollar question. Because after the first year, from twenty twenty-two through early twenty twenty-three, there just so much of the legacy and surplus Russian-produced equipment, Russian-sourced equipment in Eastern European and Central European stockpiles has been completely emptied. It's been donated. And what remains in those militaries, they don't want to transfer because that would strip them of their last remaining capability. Meaning while they await Western sourced hardware, they have that transition period where they still need to have some capability to defend themselves or to take part in operations with other allies. So until they begin on uh, getting delivery of new equipment and absorbing it into their militaries, training their troops up, feeling confident, saying this is in final operational capability status, then transferring that equipment over to Moldova would be quite a strain on militaries in, say, Romania, Albania, Poland, Hungary, Czech Republic, Slovakia. Any of the former Warsaw Pact countries from the Cold War era would be hard-pressed right now to give up much equipment. So it's Moldova would be probably looking for anything from the U.S. that is still in excess defense articles, meaning retired from U.S. stocks, kept in mothballs, and could possibly be refurbished and transferred quickly. And by quickly, I mean within a nine to 12-month period. But Even the U.S. has donated so much equipment to the Ukrainian cause that its own production lines are are now strained. And the U.S. military is looking to ramp up production of simple things like munitions. So Moldova is in a bit of a pinch at the current moment
1: which actually brings me quite nicely to my next point. With more and more of the European militaries moving to NATO kit rather than their old Warsaw Pact kit, more of the manufacturers in Europe are also moving to producing ammunition and parts for the NATO kit rather than the Warsaw Pact stuff they used to. So when we look back at Moldova, we're still rocking the Soviet kit, who in Europe would currently have the manufacturing capacity at the moment to be able to supply
3: the Moldovans in the event of a conflict here. The countries that do still produce some ammunition in Russian equipment caliber, there's Romania, there is the Czech Republic, Bulgaria, Poland, Bosnia to a degree, and Albania, but those are very small capacity. And I would say probably Bulgaria and possibly Romania would be the best bets to provide any kind of ammunition and ordnance to the Moldovan side, but at what capacity and how much they could ramp that up quickly, that would really depend on state intervention in support of that industry. And while those countries are definitely much like Poland and Hungary, they're cognizant of the need to support their, de- their defense industrial base and In light of shifting export opportunities across the globe for those countries to grow these defense sectors, I would doubt that they are in position to ramp up too much. But having said that, because both armies on either side of the the river in Moldova are quite small, the capacity required, the amounts required might not be so much as to strain what they could produce on the spot. Europe was basically asleep from the point that the Russians invaded or had an incursion, brief incursion into Georgia in 2008. They were still somewhat asleep when, in 2014 when Russia took over Crimea. So the sight of Russian bombs going off in Ukraine and Russian armored columns pouring across the border and Ukrainians huddled in basements in Kiev, that really triggered something in, in Europe. But by as early as this year in 2023, you began to see publics start to become a little less interested and a little exhausted by this. And for Europe, it's always complicated because it begins at the political level and there are splinters in every democracy. And I think in the likelihood or in the event of an outbreak of conflict in Moldova, I think there would be a brief rush from governments to support the Moldovans to a degree in some form, but there just wouldn't be the outpouring that you saw in Ukraine. It's a different theater, and Russia, as we discussed, wouldn't be able to support the Transnistrian cause to the extent that their focus right now is on their own invasion of Ukraine, first and foremost. So you would probably see two relatively equal sides not gaining much movement on the ground. And for the Europeans, that's not as pressing a cause. And so I would imagine you have some exhaustion in Europe just with the Ukraine conflict in general. The governments continue to speak of their unqualified support for Ukraine. But as time goes on, we see that this war drag on. That enthusiasm will wane, and Europe is always looking for the first off-ramp to move from guns to butter. And right now it's in a brief spike of guns because the Russian invasion of Ukraine triggered basically a a broad response in Europe that we have been downsizing and weakening our military capabilities over a 30-year period. And we've basically been asleep at the wheel. But foremost, the European countries are going to look To support their own militaries and as I stated any sign of a conflict in Ukraine wrapping up provides them with the the political off-ramp they need to shift any discretionary funding from defense back to social welfare programs
1: so let's say Transnistria does pull off the miracle here and manages to capitulate Moldova within that seven-day window what would NATO's
3: response be to a Traspol controlled Moldova? If we were to walk through this, the first step would be conflict erupts. NATO response would be to support Moldova because they're no longer being drained by support for Ukraine. But once, if Tiraspol took control of all Moldovan territory, I think the final straw would be there, and it's already beginning right now, but you would see permanent NATO basing in areas and, and no longer rotating forces in the Baltics. In Romania, it would be permanent. So, yes, the new Iron Curtain begins in Romania without question. So, if NATO did manage to begin getting supplies into Moldova before Kizhnev had
1: surrendered, how much support do you think they'd be willing to keep sending? Enough to push Transnistria back over the river and return to the status quo of right now? Or would they be willing to give enough to capture and
3: occupy the entire breakaway and solve the question once and for all? That's a difficult question. I think my first initial assumption would be that they would want the status quo ante and they would basically push them back over the river and let's focus on dialogue and peace politically speaking i think the appetite for prolonged conflict is just not there especially since you know for the europeans it, this would be a second conflict on their continent and they would want to revert to peacetime norms as quickly as possible. And for the US, the US would probably be a little more aggressive in rhetoric, but the US compass is fixed increasingly towards the indo pac region. And there's just not that much appetite in the US for, politically speaking, for that much uh, more support for a European conflict. So obviously the war in Ukraine will have a huge influence on this
1: conflict going forward, so I want to run a few scenarios by you and go through how each of them would affect the war in Moldova. Scenario A being that Ukraine wins the war and Russia retreats to either their 2014 or 1991 borders. Scenario B being that the war goes cold and there's almost a stalemate across where the front is roughly sitting today, that Ukraine ends up with its own frozen conflict. Or scenario C that Russia wins the war and annexes the four states it currently claims, as well as the Odessa Oblast in the southwest of Ukraine, giving them a direct land corridor with Transnistria. So in each of these scenarios, how do you see the war playing out and how do you see it affecting Moldova?
3: If there was conflict in Moldova, A would be, that would be a difficult one. And the reason I say that is, is how much appetite would there be in Moldova for a conflict without increased capabilities in their military? It would be more plausible that the Moldovans could annex Transnistria. Simply put, Transnistria would be without its life support, which is Russian subsidies, Russian military capabilities, however degraded they are inside that territory. And how much would the the citizenry in that territory look towards Russia as as a viable future? You know, meaning, can they continue their little quasi-government de jure control over that territory or do they increasingly feel all opportunity lies westward? Uh, I think the op- the Moldovan prospects would definitely be stronger under scenario A. under scenario B you have again status quo. Both sides are a little bit at loggerheads. however from the Moldovan perspective, less military militarily viable to take over Transnistria, but perhaps it buys them time to negotiate with Tiraspol directly in the 1 plus 1 negotiations and continue to enable Transnistria to trade and increasingly trade with Europe and offer opportunities. To cross-border opportunities, uh, both in everyday travel and business, the the whole goal would be the long game. How much can we gradually bring them into our orbit? If you're in Moldova and keep them, let them see the opportunity. The future really lies westward. Under scenario C, uh, Russia wins. I would expect in that scenario that the Russians would probably increase their military presence in Transnistria. And it's game over if you're Moldova in terms of wanting to fully absorb um, territory. It's it's It would just become nearly impossible. It would be such a long game from that point out that you, your horizon shifts from a five to 15 year period where you feel that you have the opportunity to either take Transnistria by force or by coercion of economics and politics, it now becomes further out. It just does. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The
4: New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China.
3: Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back
4: together. Face-off launches April 9th.
1: So it seems that both sides are at a massive disadvantage at the moment, with Transnistria unable to make contact with its allies in Russia and Moldova relying on a war-weary Europe for support in the event of a worst-case scenario, and while a bunch of decisions are now currently up in the air, and only a few clues out there to give us an idea of which roads each side might take, many begin to ask how Europe would react if the war were to kick off, how likely is it that this new rhetoric spirals into war over the next few months, and how tied is the fate of Moldova to the fate of Ukraine? Well, to answer that, we don't our final guest.
2: Part 3 Broke
4: Backers In today's Financial Times, uh, Prime Minister Sandu of Moldova, for the first time, called Russia a threat, that is, formally speaking. And in the past year, there have been stronger representations of political authority made by Moldova against the authorities and particularly against Russia, which they have accused of trying to launch a coup d'etat.
1: Stephen Blank is a senior fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute's Eurasia program. With the specialty in the militaries of the post-soviet states stevens published over 900 articles and monographs on soviet russian us asian and european military and foreign policies as well as testifying regularly on the military capabilities of russia china and central asia for congress and has frequently worked and consulted with the cia as well as other major think tanks foundations and major international conferences and we're thrilled to have him on the program today
4: i might add that in 2014 when the russians seized crimea there ultimate objective may well have been Odessa. People forget this. There were uprisings in the city which were put down by the Ukrainians and evidence that they were trying to foment the situation by which the garrison in Tiraspol would move 80 kilometers to Odessa. That's the distance between them. And come and say that they are there to save the Russian people and so on and so forth. And it failed. So the Russian objective was to then even destroy ukraine's economic viability cut it off from the black sea and link it up to moldova this was putin's idea of nova russia, new russia but it failed moldova is part of the russian game plan if they can prevail in ukraine how
1: capable do you think the moldova military is for example would they be able to go toe to toe with transnistria
4: here in moldova it depends on what who would be attacking them certainly not the Russian army. They wouldn't be able to stand up to that. I mean, the numbers would be overwhelming. But if it was just the people in Tiraspol, they might be able to make a show of it. So it depends on the specific offensive underway. But there's no doubt that if the people in Transnistria were attacking them, they'd have Moscow's full support. Problem is, Moscow is not in the position to give that support right now because of the war and its own economic hardships. So They've had to lie low, but as a result, that has emboldened the government in Chisinau to assert itself, call for a membership in the EU and NATO, and denounce Russia as a threat and as an instigator of a planned coup d'etat earlier this year.
1: So looking at the equipment that the Moldovan military currently has available to it, it's pretty woeful to say the least. So why has the government chosen to neglect its military for almost 30 years, knowing well that Russia sits right on their doorstep?
4: Well, part of it is the sheer lack of money. It's a poor country, might be the poorest in Europe. Second, you've had internal political struggles, and pro Russian parties have held power there on and off during this last generation. Certainly not espouse large scale defense funding and Russian pressure as well, probably led them not to do that. So there's a kind of trinity of reasons.
1: In the hypothetical scenario that Transnistria were to push across the river, do you estimate that NATO would come to Moldova's aid, at least materially?
4: Well, you know, it's necessary for NATO and and for the United States, both as part of NATO and in its own right, to mobilize their defense sectors. NATO, including Washington, is now the arsenal of democracy that Franklin Roosevelt talked about. And they have to understand that Russia has been at war with them actually since 2005. Uh, I doubt NATO could or would act fast enough if there was an offensive out of Tiraspol to Chisinau right now. The problem is that I don't think that the forces in Tiraspol are capable of doing it. And doing that would so enrage NATO and inflame the situation in Europe that the Russians would not gain anything out of it. Because then that puts them on the border of Romania, a NATO member. It's not worth the game right now for Moscow. But NATO is certainly not ready for this. Russia would send ground forces, air forces, air defense, electronic warfare capabilities. They'd mount an information campaign. They would step up political subversion in Moldova and also try to bail out the economy of Tiraspol, basically adding a substantial cost to the Russian military effort, which is already forced to forego any real growth in the economy. Again, I don't think it's worth it to them right now, which is why they want to tie it up with Ukraine
1: you see Russia looking to stir this one up at any time in the near future?
4: I don't think Russia is looking to take on more responsibilities at the moment. I think they're, they're pretty much at the limit of what they can do. We saw that in the Caucasus, where they just simply abstained from doing anything when uh, Azerbaijan marched on Armenia.
1: So with this unique situation in Moldova's lap at the moment, what do you think Kizhinev should be looking to do with the situation?
4: You'd have to have a thorough reform of the military top to bottom and and increase readiness and capability and affiliation with NATO and Western providers, including the United States. Second, you need to get economic reform and economic growth on your own to make the country sustainable. Again, that means a stronger tie as well with the European Union. Third, you have to get rid of the Russian information networks. You have pro-Russian political parties in Moldova and so forth. They need to be exposed, discredited, and destroyed. They're a network of pro-Russian information, propaganda, subversion. All those things come together. The, the Russians, as did the communists, uni- unify all those elements of what they call information and political warfare, and they're all working together on the central direction to subvert the government of Moldova and make it ungovernable except for themselves. It's a European country. It's in the EU's vital interest, I would say, to support them. The problem with Europe is that there is no such thing as Europe except in a geographical sense. They still haven't gotten their act together, even though they've given Ukraine actually more money than we have. But unfortunately, they're still buying Russian oil, which is the real source of Russia's money. Until they get their act together and get rid of the Russian oil and gas, which means transitioning to reliable other alternative suppliers and going green much faster, you will have these kinds of problems. And not only in Moldova.
1: Reading the 2021 white papers on the defense of Moldova, the overall assumption is that if Moldova were to come under attack from Russia, Russia would have an absolute total victory in the country, the likely plan from Moscow being to use disaffected Gagauz populations in the south to stir trouble, and local Russian supporters to cause problems through the country's road and rail networks, as well as in the capital itself. The Russian and Transnistrian forces were then moved to secure a few bridgeheads across the Dniester River, before using VDV troops to secure the main international airport south of Kizhnev, as well as the two smaller airports in the north and south of the country with Kizhnev itself then coming under airborne assault, and a Russian armoured column making the push from Bender toward Kizhnev, one of the westernmost cities in Transnistria, with Bender only being about an hour's drive from Kizhnev. The overall assumption of the paper is that there would be very little that Kizhnev could actually do to repel the Russians, although I would remind everyone that this is the 2021 white paper, so things have changed. But the assumption is that Kizhnev would surrender in a matter of hours, or at most a day but with how much the situation has changed since that paper was written do you expect that moldova would still roll over in the event of an invasion from russia
4: since moldova was one of the initial objectives nine years ago of the russian advance i think the answer to your question quite obvious. they wouldn't be able to stand up on their own and then russia would have a dagger thrust at the balkans and another one at the red at the black sea and the mediterranean if you have moldova and ukraine and you have a land ridge bridge from Russia through Ukraine to Moldova, you are then straddling the Balkans, and every Balkan state will feel the pressure. And NATO has not invested enough in the Balkans and in the Black Sea, as we up till now, has to do more. And this would only impose even greater costs than are presently necessary for that purpose. If NATO fails to justify its mandate, then every country in Europe, particularly in Eastern Europe, north to south, becomes vulnerable and will feel the pressure.
1: So what would be your suggestion? What should NATO be doing and what policies do you think that Kizhnev should be undertaking at the moment?
4: The fate of Moldova depends upon the fate of Ukraine ultimately. But the Moldovans have to take their own actions and defend themselves. But if Ukraine falls, everything becomes vastly more difficult. Ukraine has to win the war. There's no other alternative if you want to have any concept whatsoever Of European security. Politically, there's no such thing as Europe. Slovakia, for example, and Norway inhabit different strategic universes. Therefore, you cannot expect Europe or Europeans, which is not a political entity, to step up in the place of the United States. For too long, they have abdicated sound strategic thinking and policy in Europe, and there's no real sign that there's a concerted European movement to come back it has to be led by the united states and the answer has to be that you that both the european governments and european security institutions and the united states nato eu and individual governments and their members which includes the united states they give ukraine enough to win and the sooner the better
1: so transnistria as a region is really trapped between a rock and a hard place better off, Ukraine and Moldova. And although the Transnistrian government has indicated that they have no intention of reintegrating with Greater Moldova, at some point in time, they may not have any choice, either due to European forces wanting to solve this problem once and for all, or just from sheer political or economic pressure placed upon the Now, NATO's recent call for Moldova's sovereignty to be respected, in which they specifically called out Russia for stationing 1,500 troops within Transnistria, without Moldova's consent, may tell us something about the changing regional attitudes between NATO and that they are beginning to shift their conventional wisdom. But there's still a lot of questions around whether NATO would be willing to enforce the requests they put out, and as Europe tires of war and America continues to view Europe as a sideshow to the Indo-Pacific, their appetite for a conflict like this comes under doubt. Regardless though, there are many in Moldova that also feel they should be well motivated to retake their territory, hoping to regain control of their eastern border and occupy Transnistria once and for all as solving this problem would allow Moldova to move forward, joining the EU and or NATO, even though NATO still has less than 25% of support in the country. However, motivation doesn't actually equate to being well-positioned to make such strategic moves, and in terms of regional allies, many of the ones they'd likely call upon in the hour of need are simply tired and looking to move past more months and months of dragging war in Europe. Even if Moldova manages to reintegrate the region by force, doesn't that mean the separatist attitudes present within Transnistria? would actually go away. Since what was known as Bessarabia was included into the Moldovan SSR, this dichotomy and tension between the ethnic Moldovans and ethnic Russians on either side of the river has been present, with the cultural gaps between them only widening since the breakup of the Soviet Union. And those gaps aren't going to vanish overnight. In the event of occupation by Moldova, it's unlikely that the citizens there will simply shrug and ignore years of propaganda, traditions, and go off and start learning Romanian. Having spent time in this territory myself, I can tell you most of these people, yes, do want a better life and more money, but also have very little motivation to be reabsorbed back into Moldova. As when you speak to these people on the ground, many will point out what they witnessed in Gagauzia, who, much like Transnistria, were a Russian speaking ethnic group within the new Republic of Moldova. And whilst Gagauzia took the deal for autonomy within the Moldovan state, Transnistria opted to fight and form the breakaway republic. And whilst Transnistria still has its own language, customs, passports, and everything else, the people of Gagauzia have been largely neglected by the leadership in Kizhnev, and the once vibrant area of the country has continued to decay. So offering Transnistrians that same deal is probably not that appetizing. What all of this likely means is that whilst Sandu's government continues ratcheting one way and the Putin government ratchets the other, the temperature on either side of the river will likely continue to rise. However, with both sides more than aware that militarily, they probably only have the capacity to throw one punch. And if they miss the other side's counterstrike with the one to knock them out, which means for now they both just sit and watch and wait, staring at one another across a shrinking river beneath a widening war. Thank you so much for checking out the show this week. This has been an incredibly busy week here for us at the show with a whole bunch of great announcements that come very very soon but in particular, I really enjoy putting this episode together as Excel spreadsheets and the ex-Soviet conflicts is kind of one of my favorite things to look at. But if you want to keep up to date with the next big episode we put out or anything else we have coming up, you can find all of our links and info on Twitter, Reddit, Instagram, Facebook, Discord, Threads, and TikTok on the handle at the Redline Pod. Or if you're keen to follow me on Twitter, I'm on the handle at Oz, Oz in Australia. This show is completely funded by our amazing Patreons, who donate a small amount of money each month to help keep myself and this show going. And speaking of amazing Patreons, this week I want to thank Joseph Lucindo, Ryan Landry, Zed, and David, who are the latest patrons to sign up as of time of recording. This show is only possible with the support of listeners like these guys, whose donations are used to pay for everything from software licensing, to legal fees, and production costs. So if you like what we do here at the show, and you feel like you have a couple of dollars spare, we would greatly appreciate it. But for now, this episode, Wargaming the War in Moldova, is all thanks to you guys. As usual, here are our three book recommendations. The first is Bastard Republic, my friend of the show, Tyrone Shaw, for a great look at the period of transition at the end of the Soviet Union within Romania, Moldova, and Transnistria. The second is Moldova, a History, by Rebecca Haynes, for a look at the story and realities that is modern-day Moldova. And the third is the ever-dry European Defence Decision-Making, Dilemmas, and Collaborative Arts Procurement by Antonio Calcara. Yes, it's as dry as it sounds, but an amazing read for a crash course on how defence procurement is done in Europe. I want to give a big thanks to this week's guests, James Kerr lindsay Dan Darling, and Stephen Blank. These three are the absolute best in their respective fields, so I cannot recommend enough that you go check out their respective projects, and I very much doubt it's the last time we'll be seeing them on the show. In addition to that, I'd also like to thank my staff, starting with the primary researchers on this piece, being Nate Ostilla, Raúl de Van Rijnan, Gabriel Lane, Cameron Gale, and Sean Lamb. These much more technical episodes are always a bit painful to put together, and due to some timing constraints, these guys managed to do it in a very short period of time, so I cannot thank them enough for all their work on this one. In addition to those guys, I'd also like to thank Cameron Gale and Wade McCarr, the producers, Barry Grace, Daniel Isabella, Genevieve and may Nate Ostilla, Nick McNally, Sean Cotillem, Isaac Gibbs, Ahmad Al Ahmad, Andrew Garbery, Scott Misler Ferguson, Jemima Pentreath, Ben Butter, Mason Wise, Gabrielle Lane, and Robbie Sutton, our research assistants and writers, Jamie Tanno, our media director, Raul Devanarayana, our ocean analyst, Francis Leach, our director of breaking news, Mark Spencer, our second voiceover artist, Jonah Gunn, our production assistant, Joe Hawthorne, our audio cleaner, Rosa Rafter, our videographer, and Nick Much, a field correspondent. We've just put on a few new people, and I'm very excited to see all the great work that some of these new guys put out. The Red Line will be back in a fortnight with another international episode. But until then, thank you for listening, and good
2: night. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are solely those of Michael, our guests, and the Red Line podcast. They do not represent any government or organization, and are solely our own. For more information, please visit com.
0: We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money, and not just your own.